continuing on in our story of God, or His story is what we've named it, the series we're in. Um, if, you, if you miss any week, we do put it uh, uh, up as a podcast. Um, if you just go to Spotify or even iTunes um, and you just Google Christ Community, I think .life or even Christ Community, you'll see our logo. It'll pop up and that's how you, if you want to... Uh, stay a current on this. This series does build on itself. It's, uh, I know a lot of times we're teaching through uh, books of the Bible. It's, you know, you miss a week, it's easy to just kind of pick up right in the next scripture because it's all kind of self-contained little messages. But, but this series does build on itself. So if you do miss a week, uh, you might come in and go, okay, so how do we get here? Hopefully you don't, but that might happen. So I'm just giving you the heads up, Spotify as well. And I posted on our Facebook page uh, an easy link to um, every week. So if you're able to Jump on that, you can. So, if you did miss it, though, let me give you a few, uh, a little bit of a background on last week. So, it's his story. We're talking about God's story, and we're wanting to look at Scripture from the Genesis to the end, uh, through Revelation, essentially, and we're wanting to see that it's part of a larger story, and the benefit of that is that often when Scripture is read, it's easy to just dissect little sections and end. We're, we're trying to look for ourselves in that text. We're, we're trying to find how that means. And a lot of times we miss that there's a larger story at hand. And it's a story about God and how he made a perfect world. And as we're going to see today, how that perfect world breaks and how God continues to pursue human beings. And, and ultimately, it culminates with Jesus and coming and living the life we can't live and dying the death we deserve so that we could be with God. And we see that this story ultimately is good news. Um, I would say that it's the, it is the gospel. It, it culminates with Christ, but we're wanting to see what does the gospel look like holistically throughout Scripture rather than just only the part that we usually focus on, which is really, really good um, in the New Testament with Jesus. And so last week, we started with seeing that God made and created this beautiful, perfect world, and God declared it good. He made the world and he declared it good. He created two human beings named Adam and Eve and he placed them in this world. And when he made them, he said that they were very good. They were very good. And God made this beautiful garden and he placed these humans in this garden that he made. And they were doing all of this while they were in uh, relationship with each other the task was that they would to grow their family, they would cultivate this garden, it would create you know, communities and, and life, and there would be flourishing. And while they were doing all this, they were in perfect relationship with God. He would walk and talk with them, and there was, no, there was nothing that would hinder them. And God declared these human beings to, with a unique uh, identifier, and he said that they are made in our image. They were image bearers of God. And we mentioned and talked through what that meant. The three main areas was that it involved representing God, right? We're communicating, we're reflecting something about God to each other and the world around us. It also involved relationship, that we were in, created by a relational God to be in relationship with God and be in relationship with one another. 
And lastly, it involves responsibility in regards to caring for and stewarding God's world and one another in a lot of ways. And how this beautiful creation that God made us, that he called us to image him within that. And this world was perfect and everything was as it should be. And Adam and Eve had no needs. They had no, they were not lacking anything. And ultimately God's design was that they would multiply and these communities would become, would become communities and cities and, and that they would, they would fill the earth, they would multiply and fill the earth. That was God's heart and design while being in a relationship. And while they're doing that, they're communicating something to the rest of creation. And we kind of talked about how awesome that is. And I think all of us were like, that's not how it is now. How did that happen? Well, we're going to find out today, right? So let's jump into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than uh, any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the women, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right. So our story picks up in this perfect, wonderful world, okay? And um, everything is as it should be. I think, it's one of, this, this, I think this is a really important part of our story that we, that's always good to be acknowledged. First off, Adam and Eve had no needs and they lacked nothing, okay? And we're always trying to look for reasons, right? Like, why do people do what they do? Like, sometimes it's, it's, it's fear, it's a lack of something, it's people are in need, Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with God. They were in perfect relationship with God. There was, um, they had unhindered access to God. They were fully acceptable. And Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with each other. Like perfect relationship. In fact, their relationship, it's one of my favorite descriptions of, of even marriage. It says they were naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Like the idea of being fully known fully essentially exposed, but no shame, nothing to hide, like fully known, fully accepted, fully loved. Such a beautiful descriptor. And so they were in this perfect state, okay? The world around them was perfect. They had everything they needed. The relationship with God was perfect. The relationship with, with each other was perfect. It was this perfect place. In addition to that, they had perfect they had complete and perfect autonomy. God allowed them to do anything and everything, eat from anything, just like go for it, right? They had freedom, right? It wasn't like they had to clock in every day. They had complete freedom. The plants pretty much grew themselves. There was cultivation. There was work that they did, but like there was no weeds, right? Like everything was perfect, right? Yeah, no, nothing, to, nothing to worry about. The only prohibition God gave them, and we read that here, well, we didn't read it here, but I'm going to go, is that he, there was a tree called the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and he placed it in the middle of the garden. He said, listen, everything you see, you can have any of it, but that tree right there, don't eat of it, because when you do, you'll die. So it leads to the question, 
why would God make a tree that can kill people? Because really, at the end of the day, this, this prohibition was a, a, a command of love, right? Like, I love you, this tree will kill you, right? As parents, even as non-parents, we understand this idea that we don't want people we love to be harmed and die. And so there's things like, hey, don't do this. Don't play on the freeway, right? That's a bad idea. You'll die, right? Let's not, you know, hang off cliff sides just for, you know, Instagram shots because you might, it might end bad, right? Like, we love people, right? It's a command of love, but also it's, it's a command of um, consequence. Like, hey, if you do this, there is a consequence that will happen, and that consequence is death. So why would God make a tree that kills people? And I would say that it's because of love. Love is only love if you have the choice to not love, right? Like if I said, you have to love me, and you're like, well, what else do I don't want to? Like, there's no option. I'm it, right? You have to. Like, I'm the only option to love. Love is only love if there's the option not to. I think another reason is that love would never force someone's allegiance. God's not going to go, hey, you can do anything you want, but you have to only, like, you only can be love and, and be allegiant, like, uh, be with me. You can't do anything else. I mean, we have a term for forced love. And usually it ends somebody in jail, right? It's almost like God, and we see this throughout Scripture, is, is in his even creation of human beings, is saying, I love you. Do you love me? Will you love me, right? I'm going to make you this beautiful world, this beautiful garden. I'm going to make everything your heart could desire. And, and hope, like, hopefully that is enough. And, and if you don't want to love me, if you don't want to pursue, like, then I have this option out, and it's this tree, and it's death, right? And so our story and what we've read today, it picks up with this also a really unique interaction is that suddenly we have a snake that can talk, okay? And so I think we just need to address this. It's really weird, okay? It's weird. Like, I think sometimes I read through the Bible so often that some, like, talking snakes is, is like, oh, yeah, it's talking snakes. like totally normal. There's a talking snake, okay? Um, the interesting thing about this snake is we don't know anything about it. We don't know anything about the serpent. We don't know where it came from. We, didn't know, we don't know how it came to be. In a, all we know is that this serpent is against God. There's no backstory, okay? Scripture does not fill in the gaps. We just know that in the midst of this perfect and created world, there's this talking snake, and it is in rebellion, and it is against God and his plan, and his people. And so it gets, it gets interesting real quick. We see that this serpent starts with three lies. First, he questions God. He questions what God said. He starts off with a question, did God say? Did God say? What's so interesting that as we're, we're going in our story, God gave literally one law. Like, imagine, like, hey, to have perfect relation with God, you just got to do this one thing, and it involves don't eat there, right? Like, one law. And the serpent questions God's word and says, did God say that? And I love Eve's response because it is the most human response ever. She goes, actually, um, God did say that we shouldn't eat of that tree, but he also said, don't touch it. What's interesting is God never said, don't touch it. She added, 
a second law to the first law. She, in fact, she doubled it, 100% increase in laws, which is totally the human thing to do. We are always adding laws into what God, like we, church, like religious culture is notorious for adding a bunch of things to things. Like even the Jewish people, they made the Mishnah, which, is a, which was laws to explain the laws, to explain the laws of God, right? Like what does it mean to like, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. What does that mean? Like, how far should we walk? How, how much should we carry? Like, what's considered work? And they're like, well, this is what we think, these rabbis. And then years later, rabbis are like, well, you know, what if, we're, what if there's this situation? What if there's this situation? So they made more laws and more laws. They made thousands and thousands and thousands of laws to define a couple laws, right? Like, we love adding to these things. We love making laws unto ourselves. And with Eve, she made, she added, not only that, she added to God's word. She said, God said, you can't touch it. Which is interesting because she probably did it as a prohibition, like, I want to protect myself. If I touch it, I might eat it, right? Like, but even in that, it was in addition to what God had actually said. The second uh, lie that the enemy brought, the serpent brought, was he contradicted what God said. She said, yeah, the day that we eat of it and touch it, we will die. He said, you're not going to die. Like blatant lie. Like you will not die. And then he questioned why God said it. And I think this is a huge one. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He first questions God's character, saying that God is trying to keep something good from you. God is trying to keep something good from you. But then he also, um, he appeals to humans longing to be God and be like God. And that he says, the day that you'll do it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I think that the desire to be the God of our lives, to be like God, is a temptation that we've seen throughout Scripture, throughout humanity. In fact, even in passages that refer to how Satan fell from heaven, it was he wanted to ascend to the Most High. He wanted to be like God. It's a temptation that has gone on for all of eternity. And so at this tree, Adam and Eve are faced with two options. And we're going to see that these options that we're faced with every day as well. The first option is, do they trust God? Do they trust God in his definition of what is good and evil? Or do they define good and evil on their own terms, essentially usurping God and eat of this tree? And I, I want to just touch and just pause here for a second because I think that the simplicity of this passage speaks volumes to our society, our, our culture, and our world today. We are also faced in being tempted with those lies. If you look at just the biggest challenges that we have is that we are constantly bombarded with questioning God's character. What I mean by that is, the question of, is God good? Is God good? Is God great? Is he great? Is he able? Is God 
gracious? Is God really gracious? Do I have to, or is God even glorious? And what I mean by that, I think like if you boil down things that capture our heart, lies that we believe is, is I, I don't believe God is good. I don't believe in this situation God is being good. I must take matters into my own hands. I'm a, I think this thing is good, and I know God said it's not, but I, I believe like this is actually good. Or God is great. I don't believe that. God isn't able to fix it. I need to get involved. I need to get my hands all over this thing. I need to take matters into my own hands because God is not able, God is not great, God is not strong enough in this situation. Or what about gracious? God is not gracious. I must work this off. I must pay God back. I must hide. I must stay away because God sees, God knows. God is ready to judge. God is going to harm me. God is going to punish me. If I don't earn this back, if I don't pay God back, if I don't work off my sin, if I don't do these things, like God is not gracious He might be gracious to others, but he's not gracious to me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. What about God is glorious? God's glory is not enough. I need need you to like me, and I need you to like me. I need you to approve of me. God's approval and God's glory isn't enough. He's not great enough for me to only care for his favor. For, for me to only care about how he sees me, I must earn your approval and your favor. Like, what you think about me is more important than what God declares about me. These lies are a front to God's character. And the reason why I want to set touch on this is I think so often in Christian culture and in the church, we are obsessed with behavior modification. We're obsessed with it. Who cares why you did it? Just don't do it. It's like having a garden and and there's weeds growing up and the church is like, let's just take a weed whacker and just mow those things over. So I don't have to see it anymore. But the roots are festering. There's stuff below the surface. And guess what happens is it will grow back. It grows back. Or a better analogy, and this isn't mine, this is from a guy named Paul Tripp. He's like, it's like we have an apple tree in the backyard, and rather than cultivating the roots and providing health, we grab a bundle of apples and we just pound nails to it. So from the street, it looks great. Look at those apples, it's great, but they're dead fruit. Rather than putting the time in and cultivating below and saying, why are we doing this? What am I believing? What lies am I believing? Let's just nail apples to the tree and weed whack the weeds. And we say, that's church. This idea that we go to church so we learn not to sin anymore. We are a sin-centric culture. It drives me crazy. We need to be Jesus-centric. We're Jesus-centric. It'll take care of the sin. I promise. I promise. Jesus is the only one that changes us. If we're always focused on all the areas we're messing up, I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing sin at all. Jesus came and had to die for sin. It is a serious thing. But if all I'm doing is focusing on sin, guess where my eyes are at? Me. Am I doing enough? Or you? Because I'm going, I'm doing better than you, but not better than you. I'm not going to point to anybody, right? Because I don't know. Like, why do you point at me, right? So I'm always on each other or myself. Guess where my eyes aren't on? 
the only one that makes me acceptable to God, the only one that makes me right, the only one that's paid for my sin, the only one that brings me value, worth, and dignity in anything. So I'm working and running hard to make myself acceptable to who? Myself? My neighbor? When God has already declared a truth about me. And so what we have here is lies, and these are ways for us to help understand. Not only are we constantly tempted with the lies about God's character, but we're tempted about the lies about God's heart, that God does not care about you, or that God does not love you, or that God doesn't want the best for you. I mean, the disciples wonder, they're in the middle of the boat, and storms are crashing, and what's the first question they come to Jesus as they wake him up from his nap? Do you not care? about us. But you know what? We're the same way. I am the same way. Someone's like, do you care about my suffering? Do you care about my pain? Do you care about this situation? Do you care? Yes, he does. And that is a lie that we often believe and sometimes feel necessary to act upon. God cares deeply for you. God does care about your suffering. He does care about your pain. He loves you. And I think the, second, the third major lie is that we are with the, challenged with believing the lies about God's design. Although God has declared good and evil, sometimes we question that. I think our culture and our society is bombarded with that more than we've ever seen. That God says, this is good, this is right, and this is wrong, and this is evil. God's definition. And we are going, no, 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 no. Like this evil thing, this thing that's bad, is it though? Or this thing that's really, really good. Like, eh, I don't know if that's good. God designed the world. He is the king of the world. He has declared what's good and right and what's evil and wrong. God's definition of good and evil, it's his design. And we are bombarded with questioning that. And sometimes personally, like, yeah, I know it's bad, but is it bad for me, right? Or I know that this is uh, God said that this is, is good, but I don't really want to do that. Here's the reality. At the end of the day, we are placing ourselves in the place of God. When we are not believing these, these truths about God or we're believing lies, that we're choosing to rebel, we're sinning, whatever the case may be, we're choosing to put our place in the place of God. And at the end of the day, what it boils down to is I'm going to define good and evil on my own. I know what's best for me. I want to be happy and I want to have the most enjoyment out of life. That is the most important thing to me. And so I'm going to define good and evil for me. And we live in a culture that says that's totally okay. And not only is it okay, you should do that. You know, like that's your truth, right? It's like, what does that mean? Like there's truth or there's not truth, Right? That's your, your definition of good, your, your idea of happiness, whatever the case may be. I'm not saying it's bad to have individualistic things in some regards, but when it comes about, about how God decided to design this world, he has defined good and evil. And here's what's reality. Our world is completely um, taken over by this. Because at the end of the day, if we're just to define sin, it's just a belief and it's a trust when I sin, I'm believing and trusting my perspective and my definition rather than trusting God's. How's it working out so far? Our world's jacked. Okay? It's not getting any better. I've got bad news. It ain't getting better. Okay? It's going to get worse because 
Here's what we see. We see divisions. We see strife. We see suffering. We see murder. We see death. We see anger. We see war. We see distortions. We see all this stuff. And it is, if you boil it down to its essence, it's people defining good and evil on their own terms. It's nations defining good and evil on their own terms. And they're willing to die for it. They're willing to kill for it. They're willing to do whatever is necessary to maintain their definition of good and evil. And it's destroying the world. It's destroying the world. And we see it starting all the way back here. It divides. There's nothing more divisive than defining good and evil on our own. Because guess what? We're never going to agree. And then I'm going to find a bunch of people that do agree with me. But then when you get boil it down any farther, we're still not going to agree. And then we're still not going to agree. There's nations and there's communities. And there's, there's micro groups and they're like barely agreeing. Like maybe, maybe the reason why we can't agree and maybe why we can't be united together is that wasn't our responsibility to begin with. It wasn't our job to define good and evil. It was God's death. That was God's job. And where we align and we come together is saying, like, listen, I don't even like this thing, but this is what God said is good, and I'm going to do it. Or this is God's definition of evil, I'm going to try to avoid it, right? Like, we're doing it, though, right, not to make God happy. It's trust. We're believing God, and we're saying, I believe you and I trust you, right? It's by faith. So our world's jacked up and broken. Here's where um, we see things get interesting, is that with where we define good and evil, we find value and worth, okay? We find identity, okay? So where we think, if this thing is good, I'm going to pursue that, and that gives me value and worth. It gives me identity, right? So it gets really deep. It's not simply don't do this and do this. It goes, this becomes who we are. It becomes part of the fabric of our identity. It becomes where I find my value and my worth, and that's outside of what God has declared people to be. And so, with that, let's jump back into our story. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate and she gave uh, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right. So our story gets sad real quick. They believe the lie. They rebel against God. They define good and evil on their own. They eat of the fruit of the tree. What's interesting is that it was beautiful. It looked good. It was desirable. Just because something... Like, I, I think so often, and this is, I think, so demonic in a lot of ways, that evil is always portrayed as, like, scary, right? And, like, Satan's always, like, this little dude with a pitchfork and horns, right, in movies, living in fire. Like, he's beautiful. In fact, he's called an angel of light. And sin is not always ugly at first. It's beautiful. It's attractive. It's good-looking. It, it, it's desirable, Right? It's not like it's this scary thing. That, I mean, if it, if it was, I mean, my own daughter, I mean, when she was, we were talking about it, she's like, she brought this up without even knowing the theology behind it. She's like, why is evil always portrayed as like scary? Isn't something beautiful, good, and lovely more scary if it's against God? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, Daisy, you deep thinker at like seven. 
but instantly we see the effects of sin, shame, right off the get-go. They now were no longer naked and unashamed. They were naked and ashamed. There was, they had to hide. They had to cover. Now, obviously, very practically, that's good, but I'm, that, that's a bigger picture of humanity that we now hide. We cover. We're tons of shame. Like, to be known is something that, for some, the most scary thing. Because if you know me, you see all the flaws. You see the brokenness. You see the sin. You see whatever else. Suddenly, the image bearers of God were distorted and disfigured. And we see instantly affects that their relationship, right? That they're now hiding and they're covering and, there's, and so that marriage. But we also see that the relationship with God was changed. Verse 8, and it says, And they heard a sound in the garden, the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God, uh, Lord God, among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman's like, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Pause there. So we see the relation with God is severed. They're hiding from God. We see blame enter into our story. They're blaming each other. It's the woman who you gave me his fault. Who did he blame first? He didn't blame the woman. He blamed God. You gave her me. You gave her to me. You're, you're at fault. We see blaming God even to this day, right? Even in the joke of like in marriage. But like we see, we see God, people blame God all the time. You made me this way. You gave me these desires. You did this. It's your fault. He blames his wife. She blames the snake. She has the best blame, personally. She's like, I was deceived. Here's what's interesting. Um, just real quick, totally. Often in this story, I, I, I feel like it was told in a way, at least for me, as, at least how I understood it growing up, is that this idea that she went off and like was out like chilling in the garden, and the snake kind of cornered her, and then she goes back to Adam and like, Adam was there. It says he turned to her husband who was with her. It's like this man is chilling, watching his wife have an interaction with the talking snake, knowing, okay, that the tree's gonna kill. Like, and it's like he's waiting, and then she eats, and he's like, she didn't die. Like, homeboy was not doing his job at all, right? He was not protecting his wife. He was letting her venture out and to deal with the snake and eat a dangerous fruit, right? Like, we see brokenness already manifesting through the story, and it, and it affects the relationship with God. This holy and perfect God now is separated from this broken people. And then God curses the whole creation. Verse 14 says, And then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On the belly you shall go. In the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall eat you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the uh, the plants um, of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for um, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all living things. And the Lord made Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So we see the last thing we see is that creation is also cursed. Weeds, thistles, the earth itself was cursed, right? We see the earth itself wearing down. And Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden. But I want to draw our attention to two promises real quick, well, the two main things. First off, we see that God makes a promise. He makes a promise in this story, this bad news story. The world is jacked. The world is broken. God makes a promise. He says that one day, one of Eve's offspring are going to come, and he's going to undo what came of of, of rebellion. A savior would come. a, A snake crusher would come, and he would crush the snake, be wounded in the process, it's interesting that he talks about the seed of the woman. Like, this is definitely not cultural. Like, it was always the man. The line comes from a man. And for even back then when Moses was writing this, this to bring up like the, that from the woman would come, it's drawing our attention to the future, like the result of sin, but it's also to the fact of Mary. Like, it is talking about Jesus. It is brilliant, and it is awesome. God makes a promise, and the promise ultimately is I'm not going to leave you in this state. One day a Savior will come. The reason why it's important for us to touch on this is we're going to see the idea of a promised Messiah, a promised Savior, riddled through the rest of Scripture. The, the idea is expanded upon and built upon. But we also see that God establishes a protocol for what we do with sin until the Savior comes. And we see that he covered their nakedness with animal skins. Something had to die to cover them, right? Verse 21, God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. These animals had to die to cover them. And that is the pattern that we'll see throughout the Old Testament until Jesus comes and ultimately with Jesus. So because, just to fast forward through the rest of our story of this section is we instantly see after this moment, Adam and Eve leave the garden, we instantly see murder, we see marriage distorted, we see rebellion, we see corruption, we see death, we see suffering, we see terrible things happen. To the point where we get to Noah and we see that God, the world is corrupt and it says that God for the first time ever grieves that he even made humanity and it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so we see grace enter the scene instantly. No, he said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then the two verses later it says that Noah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We see that God initiated with Noah, and then his righteousness followed. He didn't choose Noah because he was the only good dude. He chose Noah because he chose Noah, and, God, and he was as a result of that, right? And God destroys the world. Again, he destroys the world. Not again, but he destroys the world floods the world, maybe now humans can do right. And we instantly see Noah get drunk, like right off the get-go. Has something weird happen. Gets weird and drunk quick. 
And then our story again starts going down. It gets all the way to Babel. Rebellion fills the earth. Humanity now is blatantly against God. They said, let's make a, this, this tower that reaches up to God. Let us not fulfill God's desire to be fruitful and multiply, but let's stay here lest we be scattered. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so here we have God's perfect world, broken, it's getting bad, oppression, abuse, suffering, humans' relationship with God is severed, they no longer have access to God. Sin affects and infects everything, death and suffering reign. So it leads to the question, and this is what, why when we read through Genesis, the question should pop into your mind, especially as you read through the, a lot of it is, how will things be made right? How will things be made right? As we look in our world, we have the same question. How will things be made right? That's a good question. And I think that that is part of the design of this story. Because what we're going to see, especially next week, that God is not absent. He made a promise. And I know it seems like he's not present, but he is. And we see God again start to pursue humanity. So until then, though, a couple things for us just as we go throughout our week, as we respond to this who God is and what he's done and how we fit into that story. We know how this story ends, okay? The good news is, is that the snake crusher came. His name's Jesus. God came to this earth, the true image bearer. He conquered sin and death, restoring the relation with God. He got the snake bit him on the heel. He died, but he rose, conquering the snake for all of eternity. And one day he's going to restore the garden. And it's through Jesus and Jesus alone that we're able to experience the relationship that God is inviting us to, which leads to my second main idea, and that is this. For us, I want to encourage you, enjoy that you are loved by the Father. Like, enjoy that. That you don't have to earn it, you don't have to maintain it. That the Father has invited you to his table. He's brought you in. Jesus has done everything necessary for that. I promise you that as you enjoy the love that the Father has for you, it will have a transforming effect on your heart. You will find your desires changing. You will define that your behavior changes. You will define the things that you, you, things that you want are different. And the last thing, the worst team can come up and we can close out with this. I want to encourage you to grow in your trust Grow in your trust of God and how he designed this world to be. I think that as we're reading through this story, it's easy to go like, yeah, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, but, like, but the word believe means to trust. And I know a lot of us, okay, like, hey, I believe in God. Yeah, but let me ask you this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? I have to ask myself all the time, like, Lord, do I trust you in this? Grow in your trust for God. What that means a lot of times, it's embracing all that God has declared that's good. But it's also disliking or, or wanting God to work a dislike in our hearts for things that he has determined as evil. And it's trusting God in the moments of pain and as well as the moments of, of good. And it's doing that at the end of the day as we're enjoying the love of God and it's changing us and we're trusting who he is and what he's done, what will happen is we will begin to image him again or in deeper ways, right? We're all imaging God in one way or the other, but 
we'll image him in a more clearer way. And so with that, I want to encourage you. We're going to close with some music, some worship. We do have communion available up front. And let's say every week, communion is a representation.